Imagine a world in which post-traumatic stress no longer robs from millions who suffer. You don't want to get help because you're embarrassed. You don't want to tell people the dark stuff that you've went through. That stigmatism of you can't talk to people it is so true. Post-traumatic stress is not a disorder. It's an injury that can be healed quickly so that those who suffer get back to thriving in their families, communities, and mission. And I said, I yeah. don't want to, I, I can't, I don't want to live this trauma again. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. you don't have to. Yeah. And I said, yeah. what? The experts, they forgot to tell me I can heal. I didn't know that I can get rid of PTSD. Each week, we tell a skeptical world what is possible with stories of those who have successfully cured their trauma. I just remember being able to stand by the water and look up at the sky and hear the noises, and I didn't think they were gunshots. I was like, those are Disney fireworks. I don't even know what to imagine for myself now, my future, because I have one. This is Life After PTSD. I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Life After PTSD. My name is Jeff McLaughlin, your host as always with me today, special guest, my wife, Shannon. Hi. Hi, guys. It's a relevant topic today. I'm so excited to have you back on this. You've been on the episode or on, on the show a couple times before with me, almost as always, you know, Carrie, Carrie Russo. <laughs> she loves jumping in. I, I she, <laughs> oh, gosh, guys, I've been super excited about this episode because we've like literally have had this on the calendar for a couple of weeks. I'm just salivating at the idea of getting this thing recorded and bringing on our guests. We're going to deal today with um, a topic called purity movement or purity culture. Okay. Now we're going to speak to this, like in the, say the recent 30 year history of this, but you know, Carrie and you doing some research, I know that this actually goes back even further. And so I think there is actually a more formal definition. Do you want to share that with us? I think you have it. Right. I just noted that this is not what we were against. Um, but this says the social, when I Google it, so anybody who does that, says the purity movement was a late 19th century social movement that sought to abolish prostitution and other sexual activities that were considered immoral according to Christian morality. So we are not at, at saying that we think prostitution should, I mean, obviously prostitution is not a good thing. It's, it's also illegal as far as I know. So, um, <laughs> so yes. But it's, just, but it's just interesting that, you know, that it, if you Google purity movement, you get that. Yeah. And if somebody yeah. is listening to this and they're sitting on their phone, they're like, and they've never heard of this yeah. because people who don't grow up in the Christian or the evangelical yeah, specifically world, evangelical may not Christian have, world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. May not, have, may not have heard about this and it so, may not be impacting them. Yeah. So when we talk about purity culture, purity movement, again, we're talking about, about the last 30 years, maybe 35 years at the most. And really we're talking about a movement within largely the evangelical church. I'm sure it had maybe some fingers a little bit outside of that too. Um, but really trying to elicit, um, certain, say sexual behaviors from good, you know, keeping kids out of the bedroom basically prior to marriage, like, a, you know, an abstinence sort of movement, which on the surface, you know, that's one thing, but really what was going on in that movement was a lot of guilt and a lot of fear and a lot of shame as the means to that end. And, uh, and the problem with that is that's created some incredible consequences for some people, all of us here that have worked with, with marriages and even some of our own personal experiences, you know, um, very, very difficult for people to come, uh, women especially, to come out of a movement like that. And so many of them, you know, here's here's the basic analogy. It's, it's a, you know, like a girl grows up in a, in a church youth group or whatever or under her parents' supervision and or whatever it is and, you know, is taught that she's essentially an object, a stumbling block, whatever the word is, and uh, told to, you know, remain pure, quote unquote, until she's married. And then the essential implication is, all right, now you're married and go and 
be a rabbit, right? Effectively, that's, and she can't though, right? For many, because of the psychological, call it trauma. The implications of this movement had, they had great intentions, but there are some, yes, like you said, negative influences. And I think you pretty much summarized it near the end, but they had unintended consequences and they are continuing to affect these women now, 15 years or 20 years into marriage, who are still experiencing the negative effects of guilt, shame, fear surrounding their sexuality. And so now it's become a trauma that's affecting their intimacy and their marriage, um, or if they're single, you know, just their sexuality in general. And so now we're realizing that this has had some negative long-term effects. And so that's why we need to discuss it today. And, and what we want when it's all said and done, when we work with couples or we have, you know, as, as parents to kids and then working with parents that have kids and things like that, what we ultimately want is for there to be a, a balanced, wise, safe, healthy understanding of what sexuality is, right? We want to help, we want to help parents help kids make wise decisions. We want to help people who are married be able to mutually enjoy this part of their marriage as a gift, right? And not have it be one-sided. I and mean, there's a lot of different things that that motivate these sorts of conversations. And guys, I think for the three of us, before we bring Linda on, we have to acknowledge something. We have so many questions and probably so many more questions than answers right now. And so we're tiptoeing into a subject. This, this is different than doing an episode where we can say, look, this is what we know about the neurology of the brain and what can heal and things like that. Like we've got a lot of questions that don't necessarily have answers right now. And we want to talk to people that are working in this space and have healthy dialogue, you know, here. And I believe that that's part of what we're going to get to have today. One of the things we really want, I think at the end of the day, and I've heard you say this about your kids for sure, is we don't want to tell our kids what to think, we want to teach them how to think. Correct. And Correct. so this to me is a conversation and we're not going to have all the answers, but it's a conversation on just teaching our kids and our adults, grown adults, how to think about this subject because many of them don't realize that it's affecting their intimacy today. Yeah. And we don't want yeah. it to filter into their children. Guys, Linda K. Klein is the founder and president of the nonprofit Break Free Together. She's a coach um, dedicated to working to help people release their shame, claim their whole selves. 15 years of research uh, in the making, um, really centered around sort of religious trauma in the areas of sex and, and gender and that sort of thing. She's been on CBS, NPR, um, NBC. So Linda K. Klein, welcome to Life After PTSD. It's so good to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. Let's jump in. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why she's here. Go for it. <laughs> because... Um, just two weeks ago, I had a client look at me and say, um, she said, I, before we got married and they've been married, they have kids, they've been married 15 years plus. And she said, before we had kids, but before we got married, my counselor went to counselor, we did everything right. And the counselor said, oh, you should decide how often you're going to have sex. Like this premarital counselor. And that was one of the questions. There were others. And they decided on every other day because and this was the rule. Because then he knows what to expect. He doesn't have to be anxious. And you, the wife, get a break. And she said, yeah. I realized, you know, many years into my marriage, that just that directive is a problem. Mm -hmm. What does that teach me just by that directive? And, um, you know, they, you know, growing up in a church, this is kind of the message that we get. Um, you know, men need this. Women have to do this kind of thing. And there's so much shame around um, sexuality in the church. I've often said that um, when I was growing up and with my own children, unfortunately, so I have 
just so you know, I have two children that are older and then two that are younger. So I have a big split. And I remember saying that I think we taught them that loving, you know, loving people, doing the right thing as a Christian, that's all great and wonderful. But if you slip up and you have sex before you get married, you are ruined. And I didn't say it, but I remember feeling that way myself and Mm -hmm. not wanting to, you know, so yeah, your book was like, oh yes. And, um, so that's, that's why I, when he's, when it's funny, when Jeff said, here, I got this person. She's going to be on the podcast. I had just had this client. And I was like, wow, what great timing. And mm-hmm. so I then picked up your book and read it. And I thought it's, you know, what you talk about is so important. So Linda, so. we're going to have a million questions for you today, but I really want you to start and just sort of introduce yourself to the audience and kind of talk about like, however, you know, I, I don't want to even say the elevator pitch because I don't want to limit it. Like, I really want you to get the chance to, you know, kind of say what, what led you to write the book? So wherever you think is relevant to start today, we're literally going to talk about, I'm going to say the trauma of the purity culture. And there's going to be a lot of people listening to this show that are like, what is he talking about? We'll unpack that. Just stay with us. Linda, take it away, please. Yeah. Well, gosh, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that story about your client. And, you know, in many ways, what I work on is about looking at some of these ideas um, that we were raised with in many cases um, and and how these kind of silent messages were communicated to us and then how they impact us as we become adults. So within that story, of course, the message that women are not sexual. You shouldn't have any sexual thoughts. You shouldn't have any sexual feelings. You shouldn't have any sexual desires. Um, if your sexual desires differ from your partner's, well, you shouldn't have them at all. So you know, push them away, right? Um, which often makes many women feel that they don't <laughs> necessarily have sexual desires, or if they do, they can't name them because they haven't given themselves the opportunity to really look at them, right? Um, and then teaches us that men are um, uh, voracious sexually, and that is part of their masculine, manly, manlyhood, <laughs> right? Um, and then if they're not, you know, then, then, then how do they fit into this rubric, this picture that we've been given of what a uh, marriage bed is supposed to quote unquote look like. So I grew up in evangelical Christian community and grew up uh, in the, I was like, gosh, in my seventh grade that I joined the evangelical church. And um, it was the early 1990s. And unbeknownst to me, it was the beginning of the purity movement. So I was one of a, a number of adolescents to have been inundated with messages about the importance of our purity and the importance of our living into particular ideas about how men live purity and how women live purity, which includes a lot of very strong um, gender stereotypes and expectations. Um, And growing up, what that meant was I learned a lot of sexual shame. I learned to be very ashamed of my body and of the threat that it posed to men and boys. Um, You know, it was often pulled aside and called a stumbling block, you know, literally something that men and boys would trip over on their pathway to God because I had worn the wrong shirt or the wrong skirt or was talking to the boys too much or whatever it was that that day was sexualized and deemed impure in a way that made me feel 
like I was just never going to be good enough, right? Like I, it didn't matter what I wore. It didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter, um, you know, what I did because it wasn't what I was doing. It was who I was, right? I was inherently um, broken and bad and impure. But the interesting thing is that growing up in purity culture, I believed that all of that was fine, that I, I was supposed to feel deep sexual shame, um, that that actually would protect me and would protect others. And it wasn't until I became an adult and I realized that this shame was actually deeply um, harming me. You know, it was turning into a, a, a difficulty with even being in relationship with myself, right? That verged on self-hatred, um, particularly around my sexuality and the many, many ways in which I expressed my gender um, in ways that weren't considered um, stereotypically okay. Like, you know, having strong opinions in a class or what have you. Um, and it was in those years that I really started to see the way in which shame was hurting me and this perception that I was bad was hurting me. And so it was ultimately that that pushed me out of the evangelical community in which I was raised. I left hoping that on the outside of this space that I would have myself I would at least be able to be who I am. Messed up, sure, right? <laughs> you know, impure, maybe, you know, but me. And what I found is that actually after I left, the shame did not go away. You know, I had just as much shame as I had ever had you know, within the community, because I had so internalized these messages that they were with me no matter where I was. And that was the beginning of my experience of starting to say, there's something bigger going on that I have to understand. Um, so that's my personal entryway into this work. So I, I think we need to really explain to the audience, you know, I have my way of sort of describing what the terms purity culture means, but this is your world, right? And, and I'm, you're, you're the expert on this for sure. I mean, or at least an expert on this, at least in our book, you know, you've written a book, you've done a Ted talk and uh, have a lot to say on this. How could you, you know, to a listener, there are some that are out there that go, yeah, I know exactly what they're talking about. There's going to be a whole lot that don't. So how would you, how would you explain to our listeners what the purity culture, purity movement is? or was, was and is. Sure, sure. Yeah, purity culture is the culture that's created by the worldview that there are two types of people. There are those who are pure and those who are impure. And the way in which one is defined as either pure or impure is uh, other people's perceptions of their sexual thoughts, their sexual feelings, their sexual decisions, and the sexual thoughts and feelings and decisions that they are said to, quote unquote, inspire in others, right? So for example, a woman could lose her purity in purity culture um, by never, you know, having had a sexual thought herself, but by wearing something that would make her considered a stumbling block, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody else had a sexual thought about her and therefore, um, you know, it, it, she, she would be talked about and treated in a way that would make her feel that she had slipped from the pure category to the impure category. 
this is also something that comes up a lot in sexual abuse um, because we are taught that um, women are responsible for the sexual thoughts and feelings and actions um, taken toward them or had about them. Oftentimes, even somebody who has experienced sexual abuse can feel and can even be treated like they have been shifted from the category of pure to the category of impure. So the culture that teaches this um, is when these concepts just sort of live in the air. But I actually used another phrase previously, which was the purity movement. So the purity movement is a little bit different than purity culture. Purity culture, I would say, is something that can exist, you know, in lots of different spaces. I would say that um, much of American culture is purity culture, right? We tend to define people as good or bad and different, you know, um, variations of those words. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and lots of religious cultures, I would say, are purity cultures as well. But the purity movement was something really distinct. The purity movement was born out of the white evangelical Christian church in the early 1990s. And you all might remember it because the purity movement was really... Um, uh, visible because it it generated an industry. So there was all those purity rings and there were purity pledges and purity balls and purity themed concerts and purity themed, uh, you know, curricula and video series and, you know, just all kinds of things that were ultimately about um, utterly saturating the lives of young people who were raised at this time with the message that they could either be pure or impure, which implied good or bad, Christian or non-Christian, lovable or lucky if you will ever be loved by a good Christian man. And that movement ultimately spread into secular culture, um, had a huge influence on public school education, and even had a huge influence on international aid uh, around HIV. I, I saw that. That was one of the notes that I took in in um, in full disclosure to the audience. I'm about two thirds of the way through the book. Um, Shannon, you've read it. Twice. <laughs> Twice now. Carrie's read it, you know, a whole time through. And it is not for lack of interest. Believe me, it's I it was telling Linda off air that every time I get in the car, that's when I listen to audiobooks and I've not had enough time to get into it. Shannon, my wife found it first. And so only, you know, what in the last, I guess, two weeks. And it didn't take me, I didn't think 30 minutes. And that's when we said, we've got to reach out to her. You know, we've got <laughs> to talk to her already. So that's why you're here. But Shannon, I want you to talk, um, you know, you went through more of this. This was not really a part of my upbringing. Um, it, it, it kind of, well, why don't you talk about your experience uh, first? I'm not even sure. I mean, it varied growing up and, I, and it varied, I think, for my family also because I'm the oldest of seven. Six of us were girls. And so this was a big topic in my home and with my family. It was a, a huge desire of my parents that, um, that we quote unquote do this right. So I just remember a lot of great heaviness and feeling a huge responsibility, especially as the oldest girl in my family to do it right. And, um, it was a, a huge emphasis in our youth group, um, with our friends or the people at our church. Um, I remember reading things like passion and purity by Elizabeth Elliot. That was a huge one. Um, and, Josh Harris had a book called A Kiss Dating Goodbye. That was like the youth group Bible, you know, it was like, um, if you were thinking about dating, then you were, you know, you 
somebody handed you the book, you know, it was like, (laughs) you just read the book um, and followed it to a T. And so really in our youth group, there wasn't a whole lot of dating. There was a lot of talk about courtship and a lot of talk about um, just remaining pure and being modest and um, protecting our brothers and the Lord with just how we dressed and how we acted. And I just remember that every time that there was any kind of flirtation, it was shut down. You know, it was like a big deal that we really turn off that part of our personalities and make sure that we lived in such a way that we showed that our hearts were pure before the Lord. And so um, that was for me, who's a high responsibility person, it was a big deal. It was, it was a lot of work and a lot of um, really managing myself and my friends and who I hung out with and, um, how we interacted with each other. It was a lot of, um, just looking at my heart and making sure that my heart was right. And I just remember thinking, I guess after really, after we got married, thinking, wow, I just really wish I knew how to flirt. Like, I just really don't because I'd worked so hard, right? I worked so hard at being pure and making sure that I wasn't, you know, causing my, you know, my brothers and Lord to be a stumbling, I wasn't being a stumbling block for them or anything. So I, like, there were huge gaps in my life of things I just never knew how to do because I just worked really, really hard at, at doing it right quote unquote. (laughs) That's such a common experience. You know, I didn't realize that until after reading your book thinking, holy cow, like I'm not alone out there. (laughs) This is not um, just me. And I I actually helped me feel a little bit better because I, I often feel guilt over not having those experiences, not being able to like wake up that part of my personality. And so knowing that other people struggle through it and are working on it or, or at least are aware that that's, you know, something that they're struggling with, um, was actually really helpful. So thanks for including that in your book. You know, my experience, I remember feeling incredibly isolated. I remember feeling like I was the only one in the world who was experiencing what I was partially because now I lived in a secular world and nobody had any idea what I was talking about. Um, and it was so taboo. It was so secret in the evangelical world. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really until I started to, you know, with this great act of vulnerability, start to talk to some of my childhood girlfriends about what I was experiencing that I started to realize that so many of us were experiencing this. And that became the beginning of really traveling around the country over the course of 15 years in which I heard stories like yours again and again and again and again. And since the book has come out, I remember when the book, you know, when I wrote the book, I remember thinking to myself, this is clearly huge right? Mm. And you have to make a pitch to your publisher and say how huge, right? And so I remember saying, you know, you know, this is, this is really massive. Let me talk about the numbers. But, you know, really it was guesswork to a certain extent because, you know, I hadn't done a lot of interviews over the 15 years, but I certainly hadn't spoken to, um, you know, as many people as I was claiming had experienced it. But since the book has come out, the outpouring of people who have been there and who are there, who are recovering from these ideas that they are bad or that they are broken, that are so deeply, deeply internalized, um, who have been working like you were talking about, right? Like working, working, working on getting it right. 
and um, and sometimes felt like they just never could, right? And ultimately, you know, the failure was a failure of of themselves and of their godliness. Um, you know, has has just been incredible. Um, there is a huge population of people, I think, who are waking up to the reality that however good the intentions around these teachings may have been, um, you know, there's a difference between intent and impact. And the impact on so many of us has been, um, has been greatly challenging. Hey, Life After PTSD listeners. We're glad that you love other stories of healing, but what about you? First Orlando Counseling is the premier trauma therapy center in Central Florida with a full staff of trained clinicians ready to help you clear your trauma without re-traumatization. Childhood abuse, relationship abuse, a traumatic car accident, birth trauma, first responder or military trauma, even phobias. You don't have to live like this. It's time for you to heal. Schedule a consultation today by visiting firstorlandocounseling.com or call 407-514-4470. It's that easy. Here we are back with Life After PTSD, having a great conversation with Linda K. Klein, author of Pure. And uh, I've got some more questions myself. So, so Linda, here's here's a question. Like, and, and this is a thought to bring to the, the group here. When we were when we were working with teenagers all of those years, and, and granted, we were out of that world before smartphones were even a thing. Right. I mean, kids had Facebook. <laughs> it was a while ago. No, I mean, dead serious. I mean, seriously, it's been 10 years now. So yeah. like, you know, like a couple of kids had iPhones, like the first generations ones, you know, and that was in a stuff. But you didn't have you had Facebook, but you didn't have Instagram. You certainly didn't have TikTok. Thank God. Right. You know, and uh, <laughs> and 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 so I think that what we were trying to do, like we didn't you know, we would tackle this subject. And I, I think that Shannon and I just believed that we had something good going on in our relationship and we wanted kids to have that. And so our goal was in a guilt, shame, and fear-free way to just say to them, hey, this is this is what you're holding out for. It's not our story, right? Because you're gonna have your own unique story, whatever that looks like. And I, I do still think that that is, is a good message. I think what happened was purity movement, purity culture got completely off base and, and was using guilt and fear and shame. And I know why, because it works, right? Those are effective tools, man. If you wanna mm-hmm. sort of plant a seed, that is going to work and it's going to, the problem is, is then you're making these decisions, quote unquote, for purity, out of those emotions rather than, hey, you know something? I just, um, I, I, I wanna, maybe I, would, maybe I just wanna be free from the pressures of dating right now as a high schooler and just learn about myself and just enjoy time with my girls or guys or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. Like I have some innocence. You know, I, I think about my grandparents. They used to talk about going to the, this is uh, grandparents that were almost 72 years married when my grandfather passed, right? And they would joke about how, yeah, when we were growing up, we would go to the dance on Friday night. Where the heck is the dance, guys? <laughs> the, the dance? Like the dance was homecoming. You had 500 people in a room for, you know, what, 300 people in there. And it's everybody having, you know, sex on the dance floor. Like that's not a dance. There was no Okay, I went to a Christian school. That did not happen. I don't even know what you're talking about. Not at your homecoming, but it happened when you guys all went to the club when your parents didn't know about it. We really did not have so no, anyway, we really did not have so I just want, I want to think out loud here on this on it for a second like no like, but the stumbling block piece I want you to comment on that so so in our when we would go on trips in our youth group I went to Walmart and I got 4xl t-shirts 
that like were the size of parachutes kind of thing. And so ridiculous and so obvious that, you know, I'd like to think that, that it was not ever used as a shaming device. And I don't think I ever made anybody wear Nobody one. Ever wore Nobody it. ever it wore it. It was just one. a joke, but there were. It was like one of those. All right. Hey, we got to go to the camp rules. All right. If you have cigarettes, throw them away. <laughs> like if you got, you know. And so the t-shirt had puffy paint and said stumbling block on it. Right? Yes. It's uh, yes, exactly. And, Big, and, and like bright yellow the, t-shirts. The, okay. For me. For me, this book, when I was listening to it, and yeah. I heard that analogy of, oh my goodness, like I'm a thing. I'm, I'm actually a thing that's causing problems. Yeah. You know, a stumbling block. And um, that was really powerful for me to think about that because that's what I learned as a teenager. And I, nobody meant to do that. Yeah. But it was like, and I think one of the things Shannon was talking about, and I think Linda, um, you said this too, is often I don't think we knew what we were struggling with. You know, as when I see clients and I see adult clients and Jeff and Shannon have done marriage coaching, I do marriage counseling, you know, and sometimes they don't know what their emotions are. They don't know why they're having issues with intimacy, you know, but when you think, oh, wait, all my life, I was a stump, you know, until the day I got married, right. I was a stumbling block. And even then, even after that, I was a stumbling block to all other men other than, you know, and what does that do to women? You know, like what they have, men have no responsibility. And so when Jeff said that about the stuff, the t-shirt and somebody block, I'm like, ah, she just wanted to rat me out. That's all she, okay. I, but, but Linda, I, need I to- had it written down earlier. I was like, I had it written down. I know, block. That's I know. Right. But no, it was really powerful because I really do believe that. And, and, but Jeff, that shows you the difference between a man and a woman getting these yes. messages. So, so right? I want to know from Linda's perspective here, because look, guys, the reality is we live in a culture where where some girls embrace that, where they take that, they know that their body is is a quote unquote stumbling block or an enticement, if you will, and they embrace that. Others that are in fear of that or feel shame from that. You've got TikTok now sexualizing girls at like 10 years old, you know, doing the kinds of things. It's, it's just what what is the solution to some of this? I mean, I think that's where some of us kind of go back and we go and, and, and also knowing the dynamic that the reality is that what 90% of pornography is that's visual anyways is aimed towards men. Why? Because it, it elicits a response, whereas it tends to be a lot more emotional that affects, you know, women. This is why we have things like graphic novels, maybe like the, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, Twilight series or whatever seem to have a lot more appeal. I'm not reading those books and I have no desire to. Are you with me on that? So. <laughs> So we have this sort of dynamic, and I don't know how you kind of navigate that. I mean, some of that seems to be the way that we're wired, but we've also taken that to extremes in the church culture. So, Linda, I'm thinking out loud on some of this, but, like, what have you learned, and what do you kind of prescribe? And, and, and where do we need to go? Yeah. That's, that's, what that's I the real saying. question. You yeah, know, Shannon and I were I, – I texted Shannon earlier. I'm like, Shannon, we need to talk about this because, um, you know, where, where, where are we going? You know, where do we need to go? How do we – what do we do the next generation? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, the, the, the differences between purity culture and the secular culture of hypersexualization are actually not as great as they might initially appear. Um, at the end of the day, if we are defining somebody, um, you know, and objectifying someone, right. Saying you are a stumbling block, you are this thing, right. Or you are a sexual object, right? Either way, you're defining somebody as their sexuality. You know, you are not somebody who has done 
this XYZ, you are XYZ, it is you. And that's something that is, um, is unfortunately true of how we talk about women broadly speaking. We objectify women in secular and religious culture. And at the end of the day, we objectify them according to the extent to which they are living up to male expectation for them. Some men want them to be hyper sexy. Are they meeting that expectation? Yes, no, we define their, uh, their success as an object based on the men's opinion. Some men want women to be non-sexual. Are they living up to that? You know, are they not inspiring any sexual thoughts and feelings? Whether they are or are not um, defines whether we consider them successful as an object, an object to be defined and owned and used by men. So one of the things that's really interesting to me is that I remember growing up believing that I was in a countercultural space, right? We talked a lot about it. This is not the culture. This is counterculture. And I think one of the things that I've thought a lot about, you know, in my adult life, um, as I have been part of a more secular culture as well, has been, oh gosh, this is actually the same culture. We're playing by the same rules, right? The same rules that are ultimate, ultimately a lot of um, patriarchy and sexual control, right? Um, but we're using them in different ways because we have different people who are in charge of these different spaces, but the rules are essentially the same. So, so one of the things that we need to think a lot about is whether we are talking about um, who people are or whether we're talking about what they do. Right. Um, you know, we talked uh, a little bit earlier, Jeff, you brought up that um, uh, fear and shame are really effective. Well, so actually what they are really effective at doing is making people experience shame and fear. Agreed. <laughs> um, Absolutely. They don't actually impact people's sexual behaviors, though. The research shows that um, that actually people's sexual behaviors is essentially the same, whether they have been heavily shamed for sexuality or not. But what will be impacted is how they feel about themselves. So to go back to shame for a moment, um, some of your listeners might, might be familiar with this, but it always bears repeating even though for those who are, but there's a difference between guilt and shame, right? Guilt is this feeling, I did something bad. Shame is this feeling, I am something bad. To believe that we are something bad, right? Unreconcil unreconcilably, <laughs> I don't think I said that word right, but you're with me, right? Yes, um, yes. You know, broken forever. It doesn't even make sense within an evangelical worldview that says that, um, that you, you know, can be forgiven for sins. And yet in the sexual sphere, we're not talking about sins. We're not talking about what people do, particularly if they're women. It, for men, oftentimes it is a guilt frame. It's what you do right? But for women, we're not talking about that. We're talking about who you are, right? And though there are re-virgination ceremonies, um, you know, for the most part, and, and those are complex, you know, and I think can be useful and cannot. Um, but, you know, for the most part, a lot of folks feel like they are changed forever, <laughs> you know, by whatever happened, by the sexual abuse that they suffered, by the sexual choice that they made, by the fact that lots of other people viewed them in a way that was completely out of their control, but that made them feel like they are flawed forever now. Mm. Linda, how, how do you even start to talk to like 
pastors and youth leaders and, and people like that who are a, a part of, in some cases, perpetuating this problem? Like, do you, yeah. do you even get those opportunities? And if you do, what kind of conversations do you, do you have with them? Yeah. You know, the, the, you talked a little bit about how you all talked about the love of, of your relationship, right. And how you all had had a really positive relationship and you wanted other people to learn from your relationship. So I have had some great conversations with people who are pastors who say, you know, this, this is a similar sort of point of inspiration for me, right? I want them to learn and grow from this. So that's a great way to be able to present it. This is what we did. This is how it worked out, right? We're not telling you to do the same thing, right? We are telling you that you will be loved and held by us and by this community, no matter what, that you will not change and that your belovedness will not change no matter what. Here's what we did, right? Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. Now that's terrifying for a lot of adults. So what we're going to give young people agency right? We're going to let them like make their own decisions. Mm. <laughs> Clearly they will make terrible decisions. <laughs> but again, to go back to the research, what the research actually shows is that when young people have a lot of information and when they're taught how to use their agency, right? And how to really think through things, they make better decisions than when they are shamed into ne not thinking about something. Okay. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you are taught to never think about sexuality. Now, all of a sudden you are out on a, a date with somebody, you are, things are getting sexual, but I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to think think about it. I'm not going to think about it. Oh, we just had sex. We didn't use protection because I didn't think about it. Right. Um, things just happened. Right. It was a, a crime of passion. Right. Um, this, this is something that I hear about from a lot of people in the evangelical world. Right. They, they're so experiencing so much shame around sexuality. That they don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. And then not only, you, you know, it's not even an issue of making a bad decision. They don't make a decision. They just fall into experience, right? Um, whereas if somebody has been taught, okay, here, here's the information. Here's a lot of knowledge, right? Um, and let's practice thinking through, you know, using values, um, what a good decision might be in various scenarios. And let's have this be an open conversation where you know that you're loved and valued no matter what, right? You know, we can talk through this, you know, you, I'm talking about a parent and a child or maybe a youth leader and a child, right? We can talk through this or a teenager. We can talk through this openly in a way that makes you know that you're safe with me. Um, you know, and in a way that is rooted in values. Okay. So you talked earlier, Jeff, about one of the values being, I want, um, you said sometimes, you know, people make decisions not to have sex because they, you know, they're thinking about their lives and their careers right now. Right. You, you mentioned that earlier. And just, and just, just, you know, letting kids be kids, I guess, is something I had in view as well. Let's say you have a young person and you're talking about what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> right. You know, let's allow that conversation that we're able to have with all kinds of kids about what do you want to be when you grow up, extend to in some of these intimate relationships, like between a parent and, and their son or daughter or child, um, let's let that extend to, and thus, how do you want to think about, you know, your sexuality? 
right? Um, and when you want to have kids and when you don't, and therefore <laughs> what kind of choices you want to make, right? Like all these things are on the table because you are beloved. And no matter what happens, you will be beloved. And I'm not even telling you what to do. I'm telling you that you are safe and that I'm here for you and that I want you to make the wisest decisions. I'm going to give you all the support I possibly can for that and all the knowledge I possibly can to allow you to make the wisest decisions. And I'm giving you me, this person who you can come to, who you don't have to hide from, who you don't have to say if they ever find out you know, they'll, they won't love me anymore. Mm, right. Mm. Or they won't respect me anymore. Or they'll think that I'm broken. Right. Or they'll think that I'm not worthy anymore. And, and Linda, if we can just be honest here, part of the, the culture, the purity culture, purity movement, and those who were, who were strongly into it was parents delivering exactly the opposite message saying beforehand pre-programming, right? You will be damaged. You will be cut off. You will be all of those yeah. things. I think it's so different than what we grew up with in that. Um, I think where my parents were coming from at least was the whole, don't awaken, you know, those desires until the time is right. Right. So they, they just didn't talk about it. Like there just was no conversation yeah. about yeah. sexuality at all because they didn't want to yeah. awaken those desires too early or inappropriately. They didn't want us thinking about it because if we were thinking about it, then we might think about it too much, then go down a different road. And, you know, just, so they were so worried about that. And so that's such a different perspective in that let's start the conversation. Let's have the conversation and just keep giving them more information instead of shy away from that. So different. I think yeah, your parents are in good company. A, a lot of people have expressed that. It's like, if I tell them, you know, maybe they won't even think about sexuality. They won't right. know sexuality exists if I don't mention it. But unfortunately, what that results in is people having sexual questions, right? Mm -hmm. Having sexual feelings and not having their parents to go to because their parents have made it clear. We don't talk about this here. I had my parents talk to me. My mom read me a book every couple years there was or every year there was a book you know a doctor talks to six to eight year olds and then eight to ten year olds and then, and then she gave me the book and you know and and did talk about it she actually she was uncomfortable talking about it but she was really committed to that however I went and so I I, I felt somewhat comfortable but I went to church and they did you know when I was at that age of oh I boys and they did the rose kind of like what well, you talked about the chewing gum and, um, and they had this, you know, they took a rose and they passed it around. They told everybody to touch it and feel it. And, and of course the analogy was, this is you, if you've been touched sexually at all, even if a, a, a boy is looking at you the wrong way, you can be defiled. And who would want this rose? You know, it's like all and the petals, Paul, pulled petals off, are falling right? off. Yeah. And it just, yeah. And it's just, mm. it's black by the end. And we had oh, 300 in our youth group. Right. And I remember, oh. I don't ever want to be that. That's horrible. Like roses, I still think of that. But even more, people who have been sexually abused, and it's so common, right? I mean, to have some kind of even just child-on-child -child sexual exploration, which isn't okay. I'm not saying it's okay, but it's happening. And with porn and seeing things. So we're talking such a large percentage of people who have seen this. And now we're going into, okay. I didn't even do anything. This happened to me. And so I know we want to, but I just, that was such a great analogy in your book. You talked about the chewing gum. How would you, you know, just speak to those women who are now grown and married. Yeah. The object lessons. There's so many object lessons out there, which just kind of take all these messages about you are 
other people's perceptions of your sexuality, right? Um, and put it into no uh, no secrets about it. We're not speaking in between the lines when we're using an object lesson, right? We are saying you are a rose with all the petals pulled off, right? You are a chewed up piece of chewing gum. You are a hamburger that's been devoured and there's just one sloppy, gross bite left, right? You are an Oreo cookie that's been passed around a room and spit on and dropped on the floor by person after person. And now no one will want you because you're disgusting, right? So I think my message for people who feel that they are impure, right? Even if they don't believe it, <laughs> even if their head doesn't say it, right? But who feel that they are impure is to say, you are not a, a rose with no petals, right? You are not any of these objects. You are in fact not an object. You are more than your sexuality or than more accurately that person's perception and that person's perception of your sexuality. You are more than your body. And, and in fact, more specifically, that person's perception of your body and that person's perception of your body. You are a whole person, you know? And you are a whole beloved person. This so much of my work these days, um, I run a nonprofit and I also do coaching. So thank you for bringing that up, Carrie, because um, that's such powerful work. But I also run a nonprofit and our mission is to work with people who were raised in purity culture to help them to release shame and to claim their whole selves, right? Shame tells you, you are not a whole person. You are this, right? Um, but that's a, that's a lie. <laughs> you know, we are um, so much more than how others define us. And so don't let yourself believe it, right? Don't let yourself be um, believe the lie that you are um, smaller than you are and less beloved than you are. Linda, how do they find you? Somebody wants to do some coaching work with you. Um, can't recommend the book enough, pure Linda K. Klein, but how do they find you if they want to work with you? I have a website called Linda K. Klein, and that's my full name. K-A-Y is my middle name. Um, and then there's a little section there on the nonprofit called Break Free Together. Okay. And uh, so folks can find that there and they can find the coaching and they can find about the book, et cetera. I can't say enough for those who out there love audiobooks. The audiobook is fantastic. You did a great job with that. I mean, very, Thank very you. expressionate. I just, I mean, like sometimes it's it's a bit dry when somebody's reading it. You just did an amazing job and it was, uh, and it's so funny because I'm talking to you now. I'm like, same person, same person. So cool. So <laughs> so we appreciate you. Look, this matters to us. And and even though our world of trauma is, is a lot of different faces and everything, this one matters to us. And I would love more than anything to have some future conversations on this as well and whatever we can do. Uh, because I do think this is so serious and I think that it affects so many relationships and marriages and just people as individuals. And I have no doubt that suicide is connected in here somehow, that problem, and it's yeah. all tied in, right? And so we want to be a part of that journey with you. So thank you for being on the show today. I know our listeners are going to love you and love this. And uh, again, we'll put all of the links in the, um, the description for the show notes. And I would encourage everybody to check all of those things out. Linda K. Klein, thank you so much for being on Life After PTSD. To our listeners out there, we drop episodes every single Monday uh, like clockwork. And um, certainly you can find those on any platform. Uh, certainly catch us on Instagram, instagram.com slash lifeafterptsd. And we will catch you next week on Life After PTSD. Thanks for listening. 
To learn more about our work, visit lifeafterptsd.org and find further reading and resources to help you on your journey and opportunities to partner with this mission. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review and share it with your community. For production inquiries or to sponsor the show, email info at lifeafterptsd.org. 